Just quickly, any, um, anything that jumps out to you or any questions arising from that passage? I've got to say, I was really struck on the yep. first part of the verse that says, a person cannot receive anything unless it's given to them from heaven. And so mm. the idea that any gifts we have, everything is a gift from God, our very life itself. Yeah. Like, that's just, I don't know if I'm taking context, but it just stands mm. as a wonderful, powerful philosophical statement mm. about um, receiving and, yeah. you know, and, and the pride yeah. in place, etc., etc. That's right, yeah. It, we take credit for nothing we have, do we? It's all a gift. Um, the Father of lights. Um, all is a gift from him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that, is, that is actually a key, key verse in this passage. Uh, and it, it, as we'll see, it, it actually links back to uh, Jesus' own teaching earlier in the chapter. Yeah. Any, um, any other thoughts or... Questions that arise? The Jewish uh, question whether baptizing in water we never heard about. Before, yeah. Before, yeah, before Bap- John Baptist baptized. In the Old Testament, there's never talk about, although there's mention about cleansing water, so mm. yeah. actual ceremony with water. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a new thing. And I think that's why, uh, again, as we'll see, there's a lot of discussion and debate happening. What's going on with John and this baptism? What's it? What's all about? What's it mean? And uh, probably the the scribes and the Pharisees had their hackles up because, well, this isn't something we have in our law or in our traditions. So who 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 is John the Baptist? How dare he come and introduce this new thing? That we that we don't have any control over or, or teaching over. Yeah. The first uh, first three rules of understanding a Bible passage uh, are context, context, and context. So let's think about the context of this passage. Um, you know, in our Bibles we have all these headings that kind of break it up, and uh, we can tend to think, okay, it's a brand new idea, and especially verse. Verses 22 to 24, uh, just talking about where Jesus was and where John the Baptist was can kind of make us feel like, okay, here's, here's a brand new section. Um, but really, the way John writes his Gospel is just, there's just this continuous flow. And so understanding what was said in the prior section helps us understand what happens in this section. Um, so this actually flows out of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus uh, in Jerusalem, uh, which uh, a few of us have looked at over the last couple of weeks. Uh, So just flip back to 3 verse 12. So this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Uh, Can you see the similar ideas there to to what's in our passage, this idea of um, you know, comprehending heavenly things, um, but also that reference to earth, earthly things versus heavenly things. Um, so, and we've got in verse 3, uh, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's that idea of 
You can't see the kingdom of God unless it's given to you from heaven, that kind of concept. Um, verse 8, uh, he's there, he's talking about earthly things in a sense, isn't he? Using the image of the wind blowing where it wishes and how that's a picture of the spirit at work. So there's earthly things corresponding to heavenly things, the work of the spirit. Um, another, another connection is uh, in verse, uh, where are we? Uh, verse 11, uh, where Jesus, so Jesus himself is saying to Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But it's just Jesus. So he's, he's switched into using the plural here. Um, can anyone from previous Fridays remember what that was a reference to? Why does Jesus suddenly switch into plural? It's not the royal we, it's just plural. Yeah, so later in John we'll see Jesus talking about how the Father bears witness to him. And then even later he'll talk about the Spirit bearing witness to Jesus. So there's that Trinitarian, so Jesus is speaking as you know, the second person of the Trinity, in that sense. Um, but there's also reference in John's Gospel to, uh, to human witnesses as well. So there's the, the disciples who are confessing who Jesus is and the crowds who confess who he is. Uh, but in this particular context here, uh, I think Jesus is probably referring especially to John the Baptist. Because, you know, John the Baptist's ministry started some months earlier. Don't know how long exactly it went for before Jesus appeared on the scene. And then there's this time of overlap where both John the Baptist is out baptising and Jesus is out baptising and then the time will come when John the Baptist is thrown in prison and beheaded. And his minister, So there's this overlap of these two ministries. So at this time, Jesus is saying, uh, we, in the sense of John the Baptist and I, are tes- we're testifying and our testimonies are actually agreeing. We're saying the same thing. Um, and it, as we've already seen, a few of those parallels between Jesus, uh, what Jesus is saying here and what John the Baptist says. Um, so back to our passage, we see in verse 25 that there's a discussion about purification. Um, and we, we could ask the question, well, why, why is there a discussion about purification? And we might, the next question after that is, what's that got to do with them coming to John and saying, look, Jesus is baptising and gaining more followers than, than you. Well, uh, like we, we spoke about at the start, there was probably a lot of discussion, debate happening at the time. What's going on with this baptism? John the Baptist, what's he doing? What's it all about? Um, how dare he undermine our authority? Uh, what's the significance of it? What's it pointing to? All of those kinds of debates and discussions. Um, so what is John's baptism? What's it all about? Well, we see in Mark 14, it says that John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So his baptism, in that sense, is you know, it's drawing from that Old Testament the, the person who was unclean, who's now going through the process of being made clean and being welcomed back into the assembly again and that involved 
washing, washing with running water. So his baptism signifies this purification from the uncleanness of, of our sin, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the thing is, and maybe this was what they were trying to work out, if John's baptism is what the law prescribes about cleansing unclean people, there's actually something missing from what he's doing. Uh, Leviticus 14:10 to 20. Uh, we won't look it up or read the whole thing, but you can look it up in your own time. Uh, talks about the washing, and there's um, all these things with birds and a scarlet thread and um, bits of cedar wood and all this process they go through. But the second big component of someone being declared clean is there's a lamb that must be sacrificed, a burnt offering that atones for their sin and atones for the uncleanness of their sin. Uh, so the law kind of said, yep, baptism, washing, but, but there also must be a sacrificial lamb. So you could look at John and say, he's only got half of it, what's going on? Why, why isn't he out there also sacrificing lambs for people that he's, he's baptising? But of course it's not missing, is it? Look at chapter 1 verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So where is the sacrificial lamb for the cleansing? They don't need to sacrifice the lamb anymore, do they? Because Jesus is that lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the uncleanness of sin. Um, so John's washing of baptism, in a way, he's, he's part one of what the law prescribes. Do the washing, part two of what the law prescribed was offer a sacrifice. So his baptiz- in that way, his baptism is preparing people for Jesus who comes as the lamb to, uh, to offer that sacrifice. Um, but really, this idea of purification has actually been a theme right through the early chapters of John. Uh, you know, remember the wedding at Cana? The jars, six big jars, they were the jars used for ritual purification there so people could wash their hands before they went into the wedding feast. Uh, John 2, 13 to 17, he goes in and he cleanses the temple, gets all the unclean uh, sellers and traders and money changers out of the temple courts um, and that's in fulfilment of prophecies in Zechariah and Malachi that explicitly say the Lord will come to the temple and he will, he will cleanse the temple. It will be like a launderer cleaning it and he will purify the priests so that they can serve again. Um, and then 3 verse 5 uh, where Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a reference back to Ezekiel 36 where the Lord says, I will sprinkle water on you and cleanse you from all your idols and I will put my spirit in your, in your hearts and move you to obey my commandments. So it's actually the, the first three chapters of John, in a sense, have, have been a discussion about how, how are we to be purified, cleansed, made clean from our sin. So the question is then, why does this lead to John that lead to John's disciples then coming and saying, look, uh, Jesus is 
gaining more disciples. Look, he's baptising and all are going to him in verse 26. Um, so probably what's happening there is the... So John's disciples, they've had this discussion with a Jew, which means in John's Gospel a Jewish leader, so probably a Pharisee. Um, it's more likely a, a dispute then. It's not, it's not a, a let's have a friendly discussion like we do here at Friday Feed. It was more like a com- confrontation probably. And maybe, maybe this Jew was calling into question the validity of John's baptism. Uh, and maybe using the fact that, well hang on, if John is sent by God to baptise then why has this other guy, Jesus, popped up and why is he over there baptising? Uh, why, why does John, if John is truly from God, why has he got a rival now who's stealing his disciples uh, from John? Uh, so I think that's probably what, what the dispute was about and why John's disciples say, we, we want to know John, what's, what's the story with, with Jesus? Uh, how does he fit in? How do you two fit together? So let's look at John's response then, verses 27 to 30. See how verse 27, which I said is really kind of the key verse, I think, for this passage, is really just echoing what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Uh, You you won't actually understand all of this. You can debate and discuss and dispute, try and work it out in your head, but you won't really get this unless it's revealed to you by the Spirit, if it's, unless it's given to you from heaven. Um, they are spiritual truths who are given to those who are spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Um, yet when the Spirit does reveal those truths to us, they're straightforward. Right? So we, we who have received the spirit who had that revelation, we, we look at these things, we look at the gospel and we say, it, it's, isn't it perfect? It all makes sense. It's logical. It ties together. You know, it all fits. But that's only because the, the spirit has revealed that to us and opened our eyes to see. Um, and so in verse 28, uh, he actually says, well, you've actually, you've actually already said the answer. See, they, they, says, they said, uh, this, um, he who was with you, to whom you bore witness, that's actually the answer to their question. He says, uh, where is it, verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Um, so Jesus is not a rival. I've already said I'm not the Christ, so it's not too two guys trying to battle out to see who is the true Christ. Uh, I simply have come to prepare the way for the Christ. Um, And then this beautiful picture in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Um, So that's that's why all the people are following Jesus. They're the bride who who have seen the bridegroom and they've seen him for who he is and so what else would a bride do when her bridegroom turns up to say, here I am, let's go to the wedding? The bride doesn't say, oh look, no, it's alright, I'm just hanging out with my friends. You know, it's, this is it, the bridegroom has arrived so it's natural that the, uh, the bride will, will come. Uh, 
probably at a, at a wedding in those days, it would be the friend of the bridegroom, the best man as we call it today, who would probably announce, so all the guests would be gathered at the father's house waiting for the bridegroom to arrive with his bride by his side and the friend of the bridegroom would say, everyone, your attention, they're here, get ready. So the, he announces to the guests uh, that the bridegroom has arrived. Um, sometimes I read passages like this and I think we really should do our Christian weddings differently, shouldn't we? If we, if we want to reflect these wedding passages in the Bible, um, next time I have the chance to marry a couple, I might even suggest to them, why don't you, why don't you both meet at the entrance to the church and walk down together? Because that's, that's kind of this model, isn't it? The bride has been collected by her bridegroom and they both enter together, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and they'll say, nah, nah, we've got to do it this way because that's the way everyone does it. It's been done since time immemorial when in fact it's only been done the way we're used to probably in the last century or, or, or so. The father giving the bride away. The bride wearing a, bro- a white dress. That was Queen Victoria's idea. Anyway... Um, so John, John makes it very clear. And then verse 30. So he must increase, but I'm, I must decrease. There's that overlap. The time of my preparation ministry is coming to an end. I've got to fade away into the distance, into the background. Um, is that great quote there from to be of John the Baptist's spirit? Let us study humility. We have no true religion about us until we cast away our high thoughts and feel ourselves sinners. This is the grace which all saints may follow after and which none have any excuse for neglecting. All God's children have not gifts or money or time to work or a wide sphere of usefulness, but all may be humble. This is the grace above all which will appear most beautiful in our latter end. Neither shall we, never shall we feel the need of humility so deeply as when we lie on our deathbeds and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our whole lives will then appear, humanly speaking, a long catalogue of imperfections, ourselves nothing and Christ all. Um, so we can learn a bit from John the Baptist, can't we? He must increase, I must decrease, because it's about him, not, not me. Now, the next section then is... Uh, Scholars have debated where does John the Baptist's words finish. Some say actually John the Baptist says the the whole thing right down to verse 36. Um, but I um, I go with the, those who say that John the Baptist's words finish in verse 30, and then verse 31 to 36 are then John the Evangelist's uh, exposition or or reflection on both. Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus and John the Baptist's discussion with his disciples. Um, the, the reason, there's a couple of reasons. The language kind of changes a bit. It's, it sounds a bit more like John chapter 1 kind of language, which is John's, John's words. But also it, it, is a, it is a very good, succinct explanation or summary of uh, the, the first part of the chapter. Yeah. So as I, as I said, um, when Jesus said, we speak of what we have seen. He's speaking, 
himself and John the Baptist, these partners in ministry at this point. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see how those, what's common with what Jesus says and what John the Baptist says is brought together in this passage. So firstly, we see Jesus contrasted with John the Baptist. So showing how they are, how they are different and complementary to one another. In verses 31 to 32. So see how verse 31 is about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. Uh, the first above there, this is in the ESV, I'm not sure what other versions have, but the first above there is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, uh, unless one is born again or born from above. Um, if you remember, we saw how that that word is almost like a when you're practising a play and the director says, right, from the top. Um, that idea, right, right back to the beginning and let's do it again is kind of the idea behind that word. Uh, but it also has that sense, literal sense of, yeah, from above, from, from heaven. Um, so, in other words, he's the one who himself was at the beginning and who, who brings about the new beginning of the new birth. Uh, the second above all is a different word in the Greek and it's a word that talks about position uh, as in, you know, this is above my Bible because it's on top of it in a, in a very literal sense. Uh, so he who is from heaven, who is bringing this new beginning, he's in this position of being above all, having all authority um, above everything else. Then he talks about John the Baptist He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Um, So three things about John. He's of the earth, he belongs to the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. But note he doesn't say worldly. Um, So he's not, earthly is not a negative thing here. It's purely the, you know, the creation, the, the planet, the ground on which we we stand. So it's simply contrasting between Jesus as the one from heaven and John the Baptist as the one from earth. Uh, you must start on earth because that's where we all are. But John the Baptist set, points us to the one who's from heaven. We start down here and we look up to heaven. Then, then we come back to Jesus. Uh, he who comes from heaven is above all and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So see how that corresponds to John the Baptist. He's of earth, he's from heaven, he belongs to the earth, he's above all and he speaks in an earthly way but Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard in heaven. He brings the heavenly realities uh, down. He's able to speak of heaven, to make the God whom no one has ever seen he is the one who makes him known, the only begotten son. He gives the spirit uh, to open our eyes and so on. Then in verses, the end of verse 32 and 33, we see another contrast. We see uh, unbelievers contrasted with non-believers. So we're told um, no one receives his testimony, the testimony of the one from heaven, Yet, the next phrase almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? 
whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. If no one receives his testimony, how can there be those who do receive his testimony? Well, that can only be by the grace of God, can't it? Because you can only receive unless it's when it's been given to you from heaven. So it's not so much no one will, no one's ever going to believe his testimony, it's more no one can receive his testimony unless it's given to him from heaven. And there are those who are given, to, given it from heaven. Those who receive his testimony set their seal, not that they're clever or they're true or faithful, but that God is true. Shows that we're not, not that we're able to understand these heavenly things of our own accord or ability, but we testify God is the one who's brought the truth. He's the one who's revealed it to me. Verses 34 to 35, then talk about two things in this process of the heavenly things being made known to us here on earth. Two things that are given to the Son by which he actually does that work of revealing the truth of God, of the Father. What are they? Two things given by the Son from the Father. What are they? I've got blanks there for you to fill them out. Yep. The words of God to utter. So the Father gives the Son the words to speak to us. What's the second thing that the Father gives the Son? Authority. Authority, yep. What's specifically there in verse... In verse 34, what do we see the Father giving the Son? The Spirit. The Spirit. Why does the Father give the Spirit to the Son? So that the Son can give the Spirit to us. Um, without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. That's not. doesn't mean that we receive the Spirit without measure because only, only the Son can receive the fullness of the eternal Spirit. It's speaking about his capacity to give. Jesus will never reach a point where we say, oh, sorry, I've given out the quota of the Spirit. Uh, sorry, you guys, you missed out. You came too late. You know, he's always able to give the Spirit. There's, there's never a, no limit to what Jesus can give to uh, those that he gives the Spirit. Um, verse 36 then gives us the implications of all of this. What are the implications? If this is, this is the reality that the only way that we can receive anything is if it's given to us by, from heaven, through the Son, through his speaking his word and giving the Spirit... What's the implication in verse 36? Well, there's, there's got to be no other, there's no other way, is there? If you can only know these things by revelation from God and Jesus is the one who's come from heaven with the word and the spirit, then believe in the Son and you'll have eternal life. But if you don't, 
You know, there's no other, there's no other way. It's life or death. The sun will give life. If you don't have the sun, there's, there's no life. Um, remember how Jesus said, John 14:1, you believe in God, believe also in me. Because the Father has set it up that faith in the Father, faith in God, must be directed through his Son. That's the way he's determined it must be. Um, John 13.20 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, the Father. So see how that's a principle that applies to us there, isn't it? If, if we share the gospel and it's received, well, they're not actually receiving us, are they? They're receiving Jesus and by receiving Jesus, they're receiving God in his fullness. So the, and he brings out here too the, the relationship between faith and obedience. See, believe in the Son for eternal life. If you don't obey the Son, you won't see life. Uh, Paul talks about in Romans 1 and Romans 16 the obedience of faith. He uses that phrase. Speaking of the Gentiles who have come to faith uh, in Jesus. Uh, John 6, 28, 29, they, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So how do we obey God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. So how do you obey? You believe. So faith is obedience. Uh, but true obedience is actually has to start with faith. Faith without works is dead or useless, as James says. Um, in the Shema, hear, O Israel. <clears throat> uh, we saw this when we looked at Deuteronomy. That word hear, Shema, means to hear intelligently with the implication of obedience. So you can't just hear, Israel couldn't just hear God's word and just sit and do nothing. Hear means hear God's good commands with the intention then of obeying, of doing them. Um, but the, the order is significant in the way he says it. Uh, drawing on the difference between obey and believe. Uh, eternal life comes through faith. So we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, not, not through works, not through obedience. But death and the wrath of God comes, why? Because of our disobedience. It's our sin that God's wrath comes to us. Um, so, if he'd said, whoever obeys the Son has eternal life, whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, you could say it's technically true if we say true obedience is, is actually faith, but the emphasis John is making here is it's on faith, isn't it? It's believe. Faith must come first. Faith produces obedience. Obedience doesn't produce faith. Uh, so, well, the call is clear, you know, and as we keep seeing, John wants everyone, every passage they read in John, he says, the reason I'm telling you this is so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name.